My wife, who's downstairs with the kids tonight, asked me to remind you ladies that this coming Friday is pie night. And they have enough pies, so you don't need to bring a pie if you didn't have already signed up for that. Uh, but just come out for that, 7 o'clock this coming Friday. And guys, don't forget our men's prayer breakfast is Saturday at 8.30. So uh, just heads up with that. Daniel chapter 10. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time tonight. Thank you for your love, your grace towards us. Thank you for just the opportunity to worship you with our whole being, Lord, and giving you all honor and praise. You are worthy of all of our praise. You are so good and so kind to us. We praise you for that. Lord, thank you for this uh, facility, this building that you've given to us that we might worship you in, Lord, that we might be able to gather together as your church and to be able to just join our hearts together and, and praise to your name. And Lord, and to study your word, what a blessing and privilege that is. And so we thank you for that, Lord. We pray that you would uh, now bless our time together, Lord, that you'd give us not only information but application in our lives that might draw us closer to you and our relationship with you. Lord, we just thank you again. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Daniel chapter 10. We are almost done with the book of Daniel, but as we come to chapter 10, chapter 10 is really like an introduction to chapters 11 and chapter 12. We know that Daniel has been on a fast for about 21 days now, and he's about to really observe, enter into uh, this cosmic conflict. Daniel, you see, in waiting to get his prayers answered, opens up to us what is a very interesting insight into the spiritual realm. Drop down and look at verse 13 first before we begin. This angelic being in an attempt to bring Daniel the answer to his prayer is hindered by a demonic being. We read in verse 13, But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, and behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. See, there's a spiritual battle taking place, a spiritual conflict raging in our universe all around us. It's a war against good and evil. And the prize is the, is the control of the minds of men. And because of that, we are, are thrust into this battle whether we like it or not. And our lives are either going to be controlled by good or controlled by evil. We sometimes refer to this battle as the battle between the flesh and the spirit, which that does exist. But the bigger battle, the bigger picture is a battle from spirit to spirit. The spirit of darkness and the spirit of light. We know that Satan at one point, at one time, was an angel of God. Angels are spirits, and so Satan is a spirit. When Satan rebelled against God, one-third of the angels followed him, and they comprised a powerful spiritual force in this world. We also know that there's two-thirds of angels that, that didn't follow Satan. So obviously there's a, a greater uh, capacity for, for good. But the, the, the demons, their goal, their plan is to recruit you to rebel against God. And they'll stop at nothing to destroy you. They have a very strong ally in our life and that is our flesh. Their objective is to get us to, to live after our flesh, to go for the things in the flesh in, in every lustful, selfish, self-gratifying way that we can. And those persons who, have they, who they have enlisted in the battle will stop at nothing to sway men and women into their camp. Certain adversaries we recognize today, the media, the drug and alcohol industry. 
That's why Paul the Apostle would write in Ephesians 6.12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now, for the most part, nations today are controlled by these evil forces, or at least heavily influenced by them. I mean, take, for example, really just three things in our country that has had a horrible effect on our country. In our country alone, uh, look at the evil decisions that have come from our Supreme Court starting back in 1963, when they banned prayer or anything that has to do with the Bible or Jesus Christ from public school. After that, the inability to rightly define obscenity, to, to rightly define marriage, has opened up the door to all sorts of sexual immorality, has flooded into the land. And finally, worst of all, the granting of abortion upon request back in 1973. Based on a report from Alan Guttmacher Institute, from 1973 up until today, this morning I checked it at 9.40 a.m. There has been 61,751,753 babies destroyed in the U.S. alone before they even had a choice to make a choice. And I think about that and I wonder about those supreme justices, uh, what they will do when they have to stand before the judge of the universe and answer to the millions of lives that have been destroyed because of their decisions. Worldwide, since 1980, there's been 1,554,696,309 abortions at 940 this morning, since 1980. I mean, isn't that a reason for God to come back and judge this earth? Now, I don't know. If it's not, I don't know what is. But it's a sad thing to see the recent court cases that are now being presented in the court systems and, and just the influence of Satan in our society today and the wickedness. It's off the chart. It really is as it was in the days of Noah. So this is what Paul was referring to as a spiritual wickedness in high places. The satanic influence in our world today. What's our weapon to use against these awesome powers? Second Corinthians 10.4 the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds of the enemy. Second Corinthians 10.4 One of the most powerful weapons we have as believers is that of prayer. It's the spiritual weapon that allows us to become engaged in the spiritual warfare. I think how much more uh, uh, results would we have instead of protesting outside of abortion clinics if we got down on our knees and prayed on a consistent basis that, that these, these abortions would stop. But it's a sad thing to see that we're so anxious to meet the foe on his turf where we argue and debate with those blinded by Satan where he, had, where he has the decided adventure instead of us going to the one who has all power and has already defeated the enemy. Why is it so difficult for us to, to pray? I wonder, I mean, how difficult is it for someone to talk, for you to talk to someone that you're madly in love with? You know, you, you call them up, oh, how you doing? I, I miss you. Oh, I miss you too. What are you doing? Oh, just do another. I just want to tell you that, that I love you all. I love to hear your voice. You know, I'll call my kids up from time to time and they'll say, what's up? I don't know. I'll just call to say I love you. I want to make this connection with you. In the same way, we're, we're commanded by God to love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And yet, how often do we connect with Him? And here's the problem, and the reason I believe that we find prayer so difficult, is that Satan, our enemy, is going to try and do everything he can to get us not to pray. 
Man, when you said, I'm going to set my heart on praying, I'm going to pray for, for a half hour this morning, this is what I'm going to do, you suddenly the, the phone rings, the doorbell rings, the, the, you know, the, the kids are crying, and, and, and everything happens at once. Why is that? Well, because Satan and his cohorts realize that prayer is the deciding factor in a spiritual battle. It is the weapon by which he is defeated, so he'll do his best and will really fight hard to disarm you, to get you not to pray. He knows James 5.16, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Now I think of all the things that, that, that have been developed to, to pull us away from prayer in our society today. I mean, the, 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 the social media, TV, smartphones, computers, it's crazy. We need to make time for prayer. Now let's take a look at Daniel's experience with prayer. Look now, starting in verse 1, we read... <coughs> In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, whose name was called Belteshazzar. The message was true, but the appointed time was long, and he understood the message and had understanding of the vision. So we read it's the third year of the reign of Cyrus, thus making Daniel close to 90 years old at this time, probably close to the time when the Lord was going to uh, take him home in this prayer warrior home. And you remember from chapter 1, Daniel had been re- renamed Belteshazzar, after being captured by the Babylonians, but you know Jesus referred to, to Daniel as Daniel, Matthew twenty four fifteen. Verse one says uh, that this message came to Daniel. It says the message was true, but the appointed time was long. Now, in the original Hebrew, it literally means end of great conflict or, or great war. So we read in the Hebrew, the message was true and of great conflict. Where the New King James came up with what it's there, I, I don't know, but. This vision of Daniel speaks of, of a massive end times conflict, which we'll see in the final two chapters of the book and what this chapter is all about. Verse 2, he says, In those days I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant food, no meat or wine came into my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all till these three whole weeks were fulfilled. So Daniel... He's mourning. He's making this commitment to abstain from certain things. He didn't hold an absolute fast for these three weeks, but he did deny his flesh. Uh, some people call this the Daniel fast. And there are four things that he listed which he avoided. Number one, he ate no pleasant food. That word translated food there uh, is lehem, which literally means bread. Does that familiar? You know, Bethlehem, the birthplace of Jesus, means house of bread. So for three weeks, Daniel didn't eat any pleasant bread. Now, I'm not sure if you're on a Daniel fast that you should avoid Krispy Kreme donuts or not. I, I don't know, but, but that's pleasant bread. He didn't eat any meat. Now, for some, this would be a problem. Now, for, for some, I mean, whatever reason, people choose to be vegetarians. That's okay with me. I just happen to not be one of them. Nor do I say either side is wrong. Although mankind was created in perfection, eating only green plants for food in Genesis 1.30, but since the flood of Noah, God has ordained that eating of meat is okay. Genesis 9.3 says, Every morning thing, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I've given you all things, even as green herbs. Now that's something that us men at the men's prayer breakfast like to follow pretty, pretty, uh, you know, closely. Have a few slices of crispy thing that was alive called bacon works. But here we see Daniel denied himself the pleasure of meat during this time. Next, number three, no wine came into my mouth, he says. 
Now we know that Daniel had refused to drink the king's wine because it would defile him in chapter 1, verse 8. But that was not, however, a complete abstinence from all wine for all his life. But for these three weeks, no wine touched his lips. Then he said a part of this fast, he didn't use any ointment. Now this was not an abstinence to, you know, Ben Gay or Icy Hot or AD ointment. That's not what he's saying here. This ointment was a perfumed oil that would be poured on the head and the body of a person after bathing. Maybe you could say it's essential oils today. I don't don't know. But these four things, they've been called a a Daniel fast. And people today, they'll do this Daniel fast. Now, Daniel fasting was, again, was not a complete abstinence of food, but simply certain things in his life that was enjoyable, things that were desirable. I don't really think it's fair to, to... to Daniel's memory to call it a Daniel fast because when Daniel really fasted, he really fasted. And so these, it's a little bit different here. But I'm not, understand, I'm not saying that this isn't a valid way of humbling ourselves before the Lord. I'm simply making the point that Daniel was not a stranger to a true fast. I mean, he did it back in, in chapter 9. And we've talked about fasting before. Just an incredible, important part of the Christian arsenal or, or weaponry in doing battle against Satan the enemy and seeking our Father and His will and, and blessing. But I think the application here is broader. More than just fasting, it, it's, it's, it's the act of self-denial. You know, in general, self-denial is some of the, the more pleasurable things. Of course, that's not really our, in our country, self-denial is not real popular in our country you know, we've been raised, have it your way. You know, you deserve a break today. Obey your thirst. All those slogans. But Jesus taught to deny ourselves, to get our minds off of our own wants and our own agendas and see what God has for us. I think when Jesus came to the point in his ministry where he began to tell the disciples that he was headed to Jerusalem to suffer and die, but good old Peter had a different view. He, he had his eye on grandeur maybe in popularity. He was planning on being at the right hand of, of the new king of Israel. And, and this self-denying attitude was clearly not in accordance with Peter's desires. Remember that Peter took Jesus inside after Jesus was talking about the cross and began to rebuke him saying, God forbid it, Lord, that shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me for you are not setting your mind on God's interest but man's. Now Jesus says, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. Forever wishes to save his life, shall lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. See, we've been not put on this earth to, to exalt ourselves or obey our thirst or even eat pleasant bread, though a Krispy Kreme once in a while isn't so bad. But the bottom line is we are here to please God plain and simple. And the closer Daniel drew to the Lord, the more he, he realized this truth. Daniel's fast is fasting with a purpose. And, and, you know, fasting is never required. But it's a privilege that God gives us to do. It's not a, a spiritual crowbar to try and pry the blessings of God as if God's reluctant. I think fasting can be just as much of the flesh as it is of the spirit. But true fasting is brought on by, by a spiritual burden. It's brought on by a broken heart. Some great need that takes away the desire for our food and outweighs the spiritual demands over the physical. Now look at verses 4 through 9. Now on the 24th day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose waist was girded with gold of Uphaz. His body was like beryl, his face was like appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze in color, and the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great terror fell upon them, so that they fled to hide themselves. 
Therefore I was left alone when I saw this great vision, and no strength remained in me, for my vigor was turned to frailty in me, and I retained no strength. Yet I heard the sound of his words, and while I heard the sounds of his words, I was in a deep sleep on my face, with my face to the ground. So we read these guys that were with Daniel. Verse 7 says, They did not see the vision, but a great terror fell upon them, so they fled and hid themselves. But with friends like that, huh? <laughs> you guys, I am out of here. Why? Well, because... They sensed a supernatural thing taking place. They knew something was up, something strange was happening, but it freaked them out and they ran away. I think a similar thing happening to Saul of Tarsus when he was confronted by the Lord on the road to Damascus. And as this man was on a mission to arrest Christians, a light flashed around him and a voice said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul heard it and responded, Who are you, Lord? Meanwhile, the guys that were with Saul saw the flash of light, heard something, but didn't understand what the voice said. It's always interesting to me how two people can be in the same place at the same time and yet one experiences supernatural blessing and, and, and the other doesn't. I think it happens here every Sunday morning in the sanctuary. God will pour out His blessing on one person, you know, and, then, and, 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 and the other will simply be listening to the music. They have no sense of the miracle that's happening next to them, you know, or, or worship knowing that something is happening, but they're not experiencing it. Daniel stood by the bank of this river. He saw a man who obviously had this angelic, angelic appearance. We're given three descriptions of this angel. What he wore, how he looked, and the way he sounded when he spoke. He was clothed in linen and his waist girded with gold. He looked like beryl. Beryl is a stone much like an emerald, light green in color. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches and his arms and feet gleamed like polished bronze. And he sounded like the voice of a multitude, like the roar of a crowd or a huge crash. Obviously a very impressive looking angel. And Daniel looked him in the eye and said, what do you want? No, he didn't say that. He says in verse 8, when I saw this great vision, no strength remained in me. My vigor was turned to frailty in me and I retained no strength. (laughs) He just shriveled up. Oh, no. Overwhelmed by the sight and the sound of this vision. You know, put all Daniel in the lines, Dan, and he's not fidgety at all, but, but, uh, but confront him with God's glory and, and he can't handle these saints. He reacts physically, his strength leaves his body, the blood rushes out of his head. And even when this angel will lift him up, he's still trembling. He's trembling with fear, he's freaked out over this angel. Now we know that the word angel means messenger, so the question is, who is this messenger? Well, scholars are divided. Some actually believe that this messenger is Jesus. Others believe that it's just an angel. And, you know, it could be both because the description of him in verses 5 and 6 certainly fit in with the description of Jesus in Revelation 1 that uh, John describes. And if you put the two together parallel, it would appear that they are describing the same person. That's because of that. There, there are those scholars that say that that's who John actually saw was none other than Jesus Christ. And in turn, it verifies who Daniel saw in the minds as being Jesus Christ as well. Saying that Daniel had a pre-incarnate appearance, saw a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. But then they say, after that appearance, in verse 10, suddenly a hand touched him, which would make the distinction that it was no longer the first vision, the first messenger. Because obviously you see the, the limited power that we'll read about in a moment. It has to be an angel. It cannot be Jesus, because Jesus is all-powerful. So take both perspectives. I don't know. Judge for yourself. But it was an angel. Was it an angel the whole time, or was it Jesus first and then an angel talking to Daniel? 
You decide. But we do read in verses 10 and 11, Suddenly a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hands. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. While he was speaking this word to me, I stood trembling. Notice this messenger calls Daniel greatly beloved. You know, in the Bible, there's an intriguing connection between God's favor and prophetic insight. The people God loves are those that he shares with his future plans. The greatest prophetic book in the Old Testament is the book of Daniel, and the Lord refers to him as greatly beloved. And the greatest prophetic book in the New Testament is the book of Revelation. And what does Jesus refer to the writer of the book of Revelation? Uh, You know, the disciple whom Jesus loved, John. God's favor, God's foresight goes hand in hand. Think of the blessing it is for us who Jesus loves to be given an understanding of last day's events ourselves. Well, the angel says to him in in verse 12, uh, Do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God. Your words were heard, and I've come because of your words. Now remember, Daniel had been praying for three full weeks. Now when did the angel say that God first heard his prayer? Day one, the very first day. Daniel had been mourning. He's been humbling himself before God from day one. God sends the angel on his way. Then the angel says he's there because you, Daniel, set your heart to understand. I like that. Listen, it's always a delight to our Lord to say, Lord, I just want to understand. I want to know you more. I want to know you better. See, although some people are content to live in ignorance of the things of God, we're not to be that way. The Lord, uh, you know, loves us and wants us to discover more and more about Him. You know, again, it's back to that maybe a young couple in love. You know, you want to spend time together. You want to, to know one another. Uh, here the Lord is happy to reveal the mysteries of the ages to come to us. He's given Himself the perfect teacher, Holy Spirit, for that. Now remember, we must be walking in the Spirit if we're going to gain this understanding. Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2.14, The natural man doesn't understand, receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolish to him, to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. And we, want to, we want to understand more of the Lord than we need to be walking in the Spirit, not walking in the flesh. But anyway, Daniel says, the angel says to Daniel, From day one I was dispatched to answer your prayer, but, verse 13, But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me twenty-one days, and behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. So Daniel's informed by this heavenly visitor that from the first day that he set his heart to humble himself and seek understanding from the Lord, God heard his request and dispatched this messenger, this angel, to bring in the answers. But he says, you know, something happened. Did the angel lose his GPS, you know, and get lost? I think it's another proof that angels aren't married in heaven because his wife would have told him exactly where to go, the directions and everything. No, it says that he's, he's opposed by the, the, uh, the kings of Persia or the, the princes of Persia. Remember, this fight is taking place in the invisible realm. It's no human roadblock. This is a, a demonic spirit who's been given some special charge over the country of Persia it's a fascinating here. I mean, here a portal opens up that allows us to, to peek from the physical into the spiritual realm. I think most of the time we're really unaware of its existence, but the Bible teaches there is another realm. There's a realm of, of, of a, a dimension that's different completely from ours. 
parallel with ours, invisible and tangible, and yet it's there. So much so that at times it dramatically affects what's going on even in our world. Here we're told the prince of Persia delayed God's messenger or angel for three weeks. Obviously, he's more than a mere man if he hindered a supernatural angel. And I believe this prince of Persia is, is, is a demon. And so the angel became engaged in a battle with the demon powers that controlled maybe the, the nation of Persia. Detained him 21 days until Michael, one of the chief princes, came to his aid he might, so that he might continue his mission. You see here, the prince of Persia is one of those spirit forces in high places that Paul tells us that we have true warfare about. There was a well-known fact that, that Hitler was a tool of men who were deeply involved in the occult. Remember years ago, you know, reading of uh, Nancy Reagan, President Reagan's wife, continually looking to astrology and astrologers. The late Jean Dixon, psychic, boasted of the many calls she received from different presidents over the years. It was uh, Saddam Hussein was a firm believer in magic and even applied himself with modest success to, as, as they put it, studying the sands and summoning of genies. But I read that during Saddam's reign in Iraq that thousands of magicians, fortune tellers were employed and sought after despite it being considered by many Muslims to be sinful. I read that Saddam Hussein had his own personal sorcerer. See, I think if we could pull back the curtain of this dimension, we especially see in, in the Middle East, especially a radical battle taking place. And the closer you get to Israel, the bigger the spiritual battle. The Bible makes it clear. There are demonic forces controlling the world. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. First John 5.19 or John 12.31. Now with that said, one of the popular teachings that come and go over the years is what's known as territorial spirits. And churches do what they call demon mapping. You know, demon, demon, where is the demon? Well, this, you know, since there was a, this demon in Persia, there has to be a, a you know, a prince of, a, of Springfield, a, a prince of Nixa, a fresh prince of Bel Air. I, I, I don't know. They go plotting and mapping and that where the demon is. But notice, Daniel doesn't conduct a seminar on discerning the territorial spirits or how to bind them. Doesn't seek to find them or contact them. In fact, Daniel doesn't have anything to do with them. Angel tells them, and Daniel says, oh, he doesn't, oh, I want to join in the fight. He doesn't do that at all. But certainly Daniel's prayer started the fight in the first place. But the battle belongs to the Lord. So I would say we need to go and start some fights. <laughs> start praying. I mean, praying for our president. Start praying for our unsaved loved ones. Get saved. Start some fights and let the battle belong to the Lord. Now, I do understand that Satan may assign agents of evil to various parts of the world and governments, but he doesn't do it for fun. He's got an agenda. And the agenda is to stop the agenda of God. And although we, we, we know from the book of Job that God limits what Satan can and cannot do, he still tries to wreak as much havoc as he can. Gleason Archer writes this, While God can, of course, override the united resistance of all the forces of hell if he chooses to do so, he accords to demons certain limited powers of obstruction and rebellion, somewhat like those he allows humans. In both cases, the exercise of free will in opposition to the Lord of Heaven is permitted by him when he sees fit. But as Job 1.12 and 2.6 indicate, the uh, malignity of Satan is never allowed to go beyond the due limit set by God, who will not allow the believer to be tested beyond his limit. Remember, Daniel was totally unaware of this conflict. He didn't know anything about this until the angel revealed it to him. 
And we need to know that, that, that Satan is not so much interested in you or me as he is in world leaders over those which, which, he, which he can have the, the, the greatest influence. Don't think for a minute, minute that what's going on in our country today politically has no influence from Satan himself. It's a different society we're living in today. You know, in the past, Republicans and Democrats often differed on economics, but now they differ drastically on issues of morality and immorality, obeying God, obeying man. You know, that the, the Democrats would rather have the government pass out condoms so people can fornicate, but if they happen to get pregnant, then it's okay for them to kill that, that child. And, 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 and it just You can't tell me that it's, that's not satanic. See, the times in which we're living in is not so much about politics as it is about the spiritual battle that's taking place. And these recent impeachment hearings, I don't know if you've caught any of it. Uh, don't be deceived. It's not about the president keeping or breaking the law. It's about the president getting out of office so that Satan can get his guy in there and back pushing his agenda. It's a spiritual battle taking place and we need to be praying. All that to say that, that, that Satan and his demons are out to bring our nation away from God. And when it comes to us, he sends his puny little cohorts to, after us. But in reality, we're really no match for them. We just need to be thankful we never had to deal with Satan himself. We would have no chance. But the, the only thing is, greater is he that is us than he that is in the world. And unlike us, this conflict between the angel and the prince of Persia was pretty evenly matched. That is, until reinforcements came in. It says in verse 13, Behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. So the reinforcer, Michael, shows up. This is the first time that Michael's mentioned in the Scriptures. We know in the New Testament, in the book of Jude, verse 9, it says, Yet Michael, the archangel, contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. We also know in the book of Revelation, chapters 12, verse 7, that a war is going to break out in heaven between Michael and Satan. And according to the book of Jude, as I read already, Michael is an archangel. The compound word archangel is from two Greek words, which when combined means chief angel or ruler of the, of the angels. Now, although two times, the, 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 although the two times that the archangel is mentioned in scripture, they're both uh, in singular form, the archangel, it may not be accurate to think that there's only one archangel. Two, he's leading a, an army, an angelic army against Satan's army, but remember, he, he's called one of the chief princes. So maybe he's a, a five-star general angel, you know, I don't know, or one of several generals. He, he's definitely a heavy hitter and the most powerful angel that we're told about in Scripture. So for 21 days, this one angel was restrained until Michael shows up, the archangel, comes and sets him free. Now again, don't get me wrong, there's absolutely spiritual battle going on that we are involved in, but we're not called to rage war, you know, in the spiritual realm. You may see from time to time certain, you know, TV Christian evangelists screaming at Satan, you know, telling, Satan knew this, and you know, I don't want to talk to Satan. Remember years ago, uh, uh, some folks asked us, we had, back in my church in California, they said, yeah, this girl got saved, and, and would you come over after service and, and just pray for her, and, and, and uh, you know, just have to you know, lay hands on her and pray for her, because she came out of a, a radical, you know, testimony, and, she, and she's on drugs and all that, but now she's given her life to the Lord. So I said, oh, we'll go pray. So I show up with a couple other guys, and there was, uh, oh, about six or seven other folks from this particular denomination, and, and they started wanting to kick Satan out of the house. 
And they're saying, you know, we just come to Satan. We want to get you out of the house. And, and we're praying for the girl. And they're opening up the door and they're yelling at Satan to leave the house. I'm thinking, what is going on here? I don't ever read that in scripture anyway, first of all. That's not the type of battle that we face. We have to, uh, we have a spiritual battle fought on our own plane of reality. A spiritual battle that is fought on our knees in prayer. And our actions need to be in accordance with scripture. Not yelling at the devil or talking to the devil or commanding the devil to do anything. Second Corinthians 10, 3 through 5 again says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not, do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into the captivity to the obedience of Christ. So again, it's not a physical confrontation with demons because we're not supposed to war that way. You know, if you want to destroy fortresses it's in the spiritual realm, then you destroy speculations that people have against the knowledge of God, 2 Corinthians 10 says. We, according to 2 Corinthians 10, 5, are to be casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. If you want to have victory spiritually, then you make sure that you're, you're taking every thought captive, bringing every thought into the captivity to the obedience of Christ. If you want the devil to flee from you, you don't have to open the front door. James 4 says, therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. If you want to defeat the enemy, then wear the spiritual armor that that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 6. To wage spiritual warfare effectively, you don't need to engage the devil in hand-to-hand compact. You don't need to speak to him. You don't need to talk to him. Fight him on your own plane of existence. And the way to do that is to, to live a life marked by truth and righteousness, being prepared with the gospel, walking in faith. Well, let's finish up here. Verse 14, the angel says to Daniel, Now I've come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision refers to many days yet to come. When he had spoken such words to me, I turned my face towards the ground, and I became speechless. See, again, the appearance of God's messenger sets the stage for Daniel's last vision in chapters 11 and 12. But now he's down on the floor again because the angel talked to him. And we read in verse 16, And suddenly one having the likeness of the sons of men touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke, saying to him who stood before me, My Lord, because of the vision my sorrows have overwhelmed me, and I have retained no strength. For how can this servant of my Lord talk with you, my Lord? As for me, no strength remains in me now, nor is there any breath left in me. Daniel's saying, man, I'm spent. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm speechless. Uh, I, I, I'm exhausted. Now, no doubt maybe it's due to some of the fasting that he's done, but I think the main reason was he, he, I think he saw the future of Israel. The vision, my sorrows have overwhelmed me and I've retained no strength, he says. Overwhelmed by the anguish and the, the visions of Israel's sufferings. Left him totally debilitated, gasping for breath. Then verse 18. Then again, the one having the likeness of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man, greatly beloved, fear not. Peace be to you. Be strong. Yes, be strong. So when he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Lord, uh, let my Lord speak for you have strengthened me. Now Daniel gets touched by the Lord's messengers three times in this chapter. The first touch is after Daniel sees God's glory and faints. The messenger touched touch puts Daniel on his feet. The second touch opens communication lines, while the third touch gives God's servant strength. God does the same thing with us. The same two things, adoration, communication, fortification. The Lord touches our hearts. 
The angel who helped Daniel also gave him strength to see the vision that he was about to reveal. You know, the Bible tells us in Hebrews that, that angels are ministering spirits sent out by God to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. Even Jesus, you know, was strengthened by angels after going without food for 40 days and, and being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. I'll say it. Maybe he got some angel food cake. You know, I don't know. I do believe that God still uses angels today to encourage us in our walks and to protect us in fights against satanic powers. Finally, verse 20, then he said, do you, not, do you know why I have come to you? And now I must return to fight with the prince of Persia. And when I have gone forth, indeed, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth. No one upholds me against these except Michael, your prince. So he says the angel must return to fight against the prince of Persia. This would be succeeded by yet another demon, the prince of Greece. But the angel assures Daniel that he will not leave Daniel until he explained the vision. And to this the angel adds that, the old, that only Michael could give him adequate support in his battle against demonic forces. All this to say that the conflict between Satan and Jesus is still being fought the, jet, the death of Jesus on the cross has ensured Satan's defeat, but has not yet ended the war. And we know that, that we have ultimate victory because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And the forces are against you. Man, they are sinister. And they're horrible. And they're in control of this present even world. And the only way we can possibly hope to stand against them is in the spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. Carnal weapons are useless in these battles. All of your maybe 10-step programs and all that will, will never bring lasting victory. We must arm ourselves with the spiritual armor our strength is in the Lord and the power of His might. And praying with all perseverance and supplication and the Spirit continuing with perseverance. The real fight is on our knees, folks. That's where victory comes. The angel then says, finally, verse 21, But I will tell you what is noted in the Scripture of truth. I like that. The messenger is about to tell Daniel God's plan for Israel under Persia and Greece. You know, in the Bible, the angel Michael always has a mission. His missions always involve Israel. I think just as, as demons are assigned to Gentile nations, God's angels are assigned to his people. Again, I think if Hebrews 1.14 refers to angels as ministering spirits and forth to minister to those who will inherit salvation. Do you read that and go, well, do we all have guardian angels? Is there an angel assigned to each one of us? And I think there is. I like what Pastor Chuck used to say. He says, we're not supposed to pray to the angels, but occasionally I say thanks. I mean, if you think about some of the things you put your angel through, maybe a word of thanks doesn't hurt. But next time we'll hear what the angel has to say. Let's pray.